Elixir Talk is brought to you by Crivalli, an Elixir training and development firm run by me, your Elixir Talk co-host, Desmond Bowie. If your team is adopting Elixir and would like hands-on expert guidance, we can skill you up and make sure you're building things properly. To learn more, visit us at crivalli.io or email me at desmond at crivalli.io. That's D-E-S-M-O-N-D at C-R-E-V-A-L-L-E dot I-O. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie and I'm joined by my co-host Chris Bell. Hey Desmond. Hey Chris, what's happening? Not much, man. How's, how's things with you? Uh, pretty good. It's been a, a busy new year. Um, mostly busy with planning for this MPEX LA conference that's coming up in a couple weeks. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I bet you're uh, in full prep mode right now. Yeah, planning a conference is funny because there's a lot of like early prep work to do and then not a lot to do. And then the last couple of weeks are hurrying around, getting the musician set up and the swag ordered. And we have a couple of fun things this year. We're thinking of doing a uh, an MPEX jingle. Nice. What's that going to sound like? <laughs> I'm not going to give anything away right now. <laughs> An MPEX jingle. I, I, yeah. I like the idea of it a lot. Um, our video partners wanted some music to play before and after uh, the recordings, the talk recordings. And so we were brainstorming something and someone pointed out, well, we're in LA, like we should have a jingle. Yeah, and I'm sure there's like a ton of musicians who will just jump in and do that for you, right? Yeah, probably. Probably a bunch of famous ones. Yeah. Or people who did like famous TV shows. Nice. So you can get something really, really like MPEXy and cool. Yeah, really memorable. So we'll <laughs> see. You know, there's always something on there's always something on the table for MPEX. Definitely. Why don't you tell us a bit more about the uh, conference as well? Well, for those that haven't heard of MPEX, it's a one day single track uh, conference for technical audience that was founded in New York a couple years ago. And we did three events in New York, and now we're opening our first one in LA on Saturday, February 10th. So um, it's a couple weeks away, it's coming up. Um, tickets are on sale now, and we have a really awesome speakers lineup, uh, including our British co-host, Chris Bell. <laughs> and um, we have a couple of really interesting panels that we're trying out this year for deployment and adoption. And these are two subjects that I think people are curious about because they want to have Elixir happening at their company. But every company is a little different. You know, there's different politics and different um, different teams in place. And so our thinking is that one speaker on stage for 20 minutes sharing their experience might not be relevant to your experience. So now we're going to have two or three people on each of these panels uh, shortly describe what they've been up to, what's worked for them, and then take questions from the audience. So um, you can really get something that's valuable for you. Nice. Yeah, I think the panel format is a really good idea. Um, I, I'm sure like there'll be a lot of people with a lot of questions about those two particular subjects as well. Um, and yeah. did I see that uh, a certain Desmond Bowie is actually uh, on the panel himself? Uh, that's right. I'm on the deployment panel. Um, I have some experience with deploying a lot of uh, Elixir apps to EC2. Um, I use Linode a lot for Crivalli projects. So um, I've done that a lot for small, mid-sized projects. And uh, I think that's where a lot of people are at. And, you know, I do most of that with Distillery and eDeliver, Umbrella apps, regular apps. I haven't done a lot of clustering, 
but um, that's not something I usually recommend anyway. So I should definitely ask you a question about that just to call you out, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could do that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm really looking forward to being there um, and to, to speaking at the conference. Um, I think you should remind our listeners about where to get tickets and how to do all of that side of things. Tickets are on sale on our website, which is mpex.co slash la.html. And don't forget the .html because uh, apparently Desmond doesn't know how to set up directory structures. so <laughs> It won't load if you don't have the HTML, so don't forget <laughs> that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, there's also, I do want to point out, we have um, trainings this year, too, on the day before the conference on February Ninth, um, we have two trainings. I'm leading a basics training for people who just want to get their feet wet with Elixir. But we also have an advanced training with two Elixir core team members. Um, Andrea Lapardi and James Fish are leading a training that will cover the new property-based testing and uh, gen servers and a few other advanced topics um, in the Elixir ecosystem. That's so cool. Um, just, uh, I'm actually going to be coming along to that just because I really want to learn about property testing. So yeah. uh, really excited to have those guys doing that as well. Yeah, I think I might be in that training too. Well, aren't you doing the other one? I might just bring everyone into the advanced training. Uh, we'll uh, see, okay. we'll see. That or sounds we'll... kind of selfish. You, you just right. want to learn yourself. <laughs> just, yeah. it just It sounds like a too good a training to pass up. I know, but yeah. Definitely. If you're out there and you're interested in um, a basics training, then sign up for that. I'll show up and teach it. Don't worry. Good. That's good. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really excited about learning a bit more about property testing. Um, and hopefully after that, we might even be able to do a show about it or something, you know, impart mm -hmm. our newly learned knowledge upon other people. Yeah, I think a lot of people are curious, but, you know, haven't experienced much of it to really know what the benefits and, and downsides are. No, definitely. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be great to uh, like do a proper deep dive into that, especially with those, those two uh, who are both very talented developers and know a, a hell of a lot about the language and, and a lot of these different kind of ideas. Yeah, it's not often you get the two of them in one room to drop knowledge bombs on you. Definitely. Cool, so what else has been going on? Uh, well... It's sunny and warm here in California. <laughs> I feel like this is the intro to every podcast. <laughs> and then I go, well, it's not so warm in New York. <laughs> and then yeah. we reflect on the weather. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, uh, it's been on my mind. I go surfing a lot. Uh, it's great sigh. here. Deep yeah. sigh. You should come visit. Yeah. I know. Your life sounds pretty good, I have to say. The, the LA lifestyle. It's, it's well, appealing. I miss New York a lot. What's happening with you? Uh, so we're prepping for the for the MPEX NYC conference as well. So uh, uh, the, actually the CFP is open for that right now. So if you're looking to come and speak, if you've never spoken before, uh, we can help you out. We love first time speakers. And if you just have something vaguely related to Elixir or something that you think would be interesting to the community, uh, be sure to submit a talk. Uh, so you can do that over on our page, which is actually mpex.co forward slash myc.html. And don't, and don't forget, forget the, the HTML. <laughs> Maybe we should change it to .ex just to like, I don't know, be cool. Wouldn't that break some HTTP spec? Yeah, but maybe we, yeah, probably would. But maybe we could like somehow route the traffic in and make it 
work. I don't know. Well, if if Tim Berners Lee is listening to this, then <laughs> he's probably we're mad. Sorry. Us, but <laughs> yeah, we apologize in advance. But uh, yeah, we're just like in full conference preparing mode as well, and I kind of need to get started on my talk as well that I'll be giving in a few weeks. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but we're looking yeah, forward if, to it. Yeah, d- yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about giving it um, and being up there on the stage and talking a little bit about the kinds of things we've been doing here at Frame.io as well. It'd be cool. Yeah, great. Cool. So should we uh, jump into the show and answer some questions? Yeah. What's on tap for Elixir Talk, Chris? Uh, I think we are going to kick off by talking about how to use multiple databases in the same app, which is a question that came in a long time ago that we've kind of been putting off. Um, from a from a a person called Google I Apple. So thank you for your submission, first of all. Um, and let let's jump in, Desmond. All right, you can you can kick this one off. Great. So I'm going to assume that he means the same Phoenix app because that's usually where we see databases being used. But um, you can use use these patterns anywhere. Uh, the general um, way people interact with databases. In Elixir is through Ecto, um, which is a query building library, um, and also uses uh, what's called the repository pattern for accessing databases. So, if you're used to something like Rails or Active Record, um, you're used to a much more close connection to the database. And I don't mean connection like the literal connection, but the database is very tied into your um, into your app, into your models. Um, into the shape of the data coming out of it. Um, and Ecto divorces the concept of a schema, which is here's the shape of my data from the database itself. So mm-hmm. um, what happens is you, oh, and uh, queries are a third thing. So you can build up an individual query independent of the models that you're talking to. So you can have sort of a generic query that looks up things by uh, created at, for example, and you can use that with any model um, you want. Then you define your schemas, which say, well, here are the fields in, in the different tables. Um, you can have virtual fields and uh, define relationships. And then once you say, okay, for this schema, execute this query, and then you give that query to a database. And this part of passing a query to a database takes some getting used to for people who are um, coming from a different paradigm. But once you get used to it, it's, it's very clean, and it has uh, the benefit of letting you know exactly when a query happens. Um, in Active Record, you never quite know when a query goes down, but with this, you always know the point at which you look up the data from the database. So then, once you've internalized uh, the different processes of this, um, of this action, then using a different database is as simple as passing your query to a different repo. And when your app starts up, you define these repositories that say, okay, well, I'm going to define my app.repo as connecting to this Postgres instance on this server with these credentials. And you can say my app.legacyrepo connects to this Mongo database on these other servers with these credentials. And so then you simply pass the relevant query, and you can reuse the same queries if they're valid for your schema, to each repo. And you can have as many of them as, uh, as you want. And each one corresponds to a different database. Yeah, um, just to add to that, so each each repository there has its own 
uh, adapter that backs into Ecto, right? So if you're using Postgres, that will be the Postgres adapter for, for Ecto. So it knows how to convert that kind of abstract idea of a query into the specifics that are needed on the database itself. Um, your point about like very abstract queries is is a good one. It's like I still feel like you end up with this coupling between the query and the the repository in a lot of ways, or actually the query and the database, especially when you want to use some like more of the uh, kind of advanced features of your database. Mm -hmm. We end up writing lots of fragments, which are like raw uh, SQL, uh, and then basically passing that through to the the repository. But yeah, it's it's so simple for you to have this idea of multiple repositories in your app because of the way that Ecto is designed. Um, and you actually just start those up as well. Uh, so each repository gets started and then has a pool of workers that you uh, basically can access the database through. Um, and you know that pattern is no different if you're using one or n databases as well. So you can have as many different repositories as you want running with that are backed into your database. Yeah, each repository has its own supervision tree, um, which you can see in your application. And like other supervision trees, you can have a bunch of them. And you do have to keep in your head as a programmer which database you're talking to. And Chris raises a good point about uh, there is inevitable coupling between a query and a database, because particularly if you're using advanced features that are only supported by a particular data store, then you're going to have to bake that into your query. I personally think the whole oh, you should just be able to swap out your data store that Active Record like to push. I think that's overblown. I very rarely see that. And the the work that people put into being able to do that at some point, I think is, is, is just not, it never pays off. Do you remember when we used to develop with uh, SQLite as a dev database because no one wanted to run like my, my SQL there? And then basically you'd go into production and something wouldn't work in the same way because, you know, your data store is actually different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have to think about these things. Like, it's not a black box. And I think Ecto took the right approach by um, embracing that and using uh, database features like constraints um, and like unique indexes. And those really have, uh, I don't know, first-class support, but they have strong support in Ecto for reaching in and doing this and not doing everything in application code. Definitely, yeah. It's funny because um, you see some database-specific features being... Like, yeah, they have to mention them in the docs, right? Like, upserts are a really good one for me. Like, if you think about how upserts work on MySQL to Postgres, there's there's a lot of differences. So some of that actually gets pushed up to the execution uh, of those queries as well. So you have to be a little bit careful about what you're doing. And I don't think you can write this very, very generalized abstract layer that just passes things around to different repos all the time. Um, but that's okay as well, you know? This should be a kind of like, specific code in your application that needs to talk to these different points. Um, yeah. So just to give you, oh, sorry, go on. The point is that uh, it is easy to talk to any of these databases, not necessarily that you can reuse your code, um, because you do have to define probably different schemas for each database, because uh, the shape of the data probably isn't the same. But um, you always know which one you're talking to, and you can talk to any of them uh, at any point. Yeah, definitely. Um, so to give you a real-world example of something that we've been exploring recently at Frame, um, so we use uh, AWS's Aurora uh, database, which is we use the Postgres variant of Aurora. But they have this really cool idea of um, you can basically have read replicas separated, and they can be behind a single endpoint, uh, which directs all of 
the traffic to the, the appropriate read replicas that you have. So now we can have this logical separation if we wanted between our read layer and our write layer. So we can basically split on read-write traffic using a different repository because that's the, the repository is the point in time in which you're defining all of your uh, credentials, how you access it and all things like that. Um, and then we have this clear separation of saying like, you know what, we want to optimize this and we want to say that, you know, going to our read replica on this, on this particular query is, is perfectly acceptable. So in that case, you would define your uh, read replica as a separate repo. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And we would start up a different uh, pool of workers to access it as well. That's very, uh, very clean and very explicit. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, like you are being incredibly explicit when you're saying like, I want to go through this read replica. You're saying, you know, you would have a different repo that you would be actually um, making those queries against. So it'd be, it'll be really easy to do that. Mm -hmm. And I know another example is um, Desmond and I both worked on this app where uh, we set up a repository access pattern where we went to a, a legacy MongoDB for some bits of data. And then we had a Postgres database for other pieces of data. Um, I, I probably wouldn't recommend doing that. I don't know. <laughs> it, it worked for our very particular use case because we were doing some like uh, some migration where we were slowly migrating into a new system and we needed some piece of data from this old system. But um, yeah, generally, I think it's a bit weird to have two sources of truth running around in your system at one point in time. Yeah, that's not a fault of this repository pattern. That was just a challenge of the particular migration we were working on. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. The, the repository pattern really does hold up. And, you know, I, I think one of the the best elements of design in Ecto is having this logical separation between these different parts uh, rather than have it all kind of jumbled together in that in that active record kind of pattern. Um, but one, and just quickly to flesh out uh, Chris's example, which I think helps make his point about um, having this explicit thing, but also being able to tie it together, we would have um, schemas for the legacy, like a legacy user in, um, in the setup, and also a schema for we'll call it modern user. Um, and so we define these two different schemas that have different fields, and then we would take both of those. And then we would have a third schema that was just user that would synthesize these two structs into some sort of master master struct um, that we would use throughout the app. So the rest of the app didn't have to care about where these things came from. We just had a unified concept of a user and um, having having structs and being able to cast things again through Ecto made all that very uh, very easy to do um, and very easy to work with at a higher level. Now at the, at the lower level we did have to deal with some of that plumbing to set it up but once it's in place um, it was very easy to uh, to think about. Yeah and then you can imagine a world where like you move entirely to this new schema right and then that old access disappears but the rest of your application doesn't have to know about that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're you're setting up these nice abstractions. Um, and, you know, data access is just, it could be from anywhere, right? That could have been from a remote API as well. Yeah, it could it have been from a CSV be. file. Right, right, right. I don't know if you'd want to use, I guess you could use the repository pattern to do that. I don't know if you'd want to explicitly use Ecto to do it, but. Yeah, I think they mentioned that so. in the example, but that's probably one case where when reality hits, you might want to reach for a different tool. Definitely. Yeah, so uh, hopefully that answers your question, Google I Apple. Um, and, you know, for everyone out there, if you have any questions and you want us to answer, um, you can open an issue at elixir talk slash elixir talk on GitHub. 
um, and we'll be happy to answer it. Yeah, all these questions are coming off of our uh, GitHub repo, so feel free to um, open an issue and chat us up, and we will get back to you. Yeah. Uh, so should we do another one? Sounds good. We have another question from um, GitHub user Foz Codes, who asks about how to mock slash stub tests for external APIs in integration tests. And he says, uh, mocking Elixir isn't typically done in the classical sense. He's a big fan of web mock in Ruby or knock in Node. There's not a suggested route in Elixir. There's a Platformatech blog post on um, using mocks and explicit contracts, uh, which he says works well in simple test cases with hard-coded pre-baked responses. But when you're working with dynamic responses on a per-test basis, um, you're maybe hitting a dynamic API. Uh, he ended up using an agent to uh, preload records and uh, request or results for a given request. So that's interesting. He's not sure if it's the right way or not, and he's curious if there's a better approach. Chris, have you had experience with this? Uh, extensive amounts of experience with this. So first of all, we follow that uh, what what's mentioned in that article, which is about um, having having mocks have this explicit contract between uh, basically what you're trying to access and the mock always giving you back something that you would expect. So that's the contract layer. So basically what you're saying in that mock is that if you had like a HTTP client and then a, a uh, an in-memory version that acts as your mock, the responses and the contract should always be the same between those two. Uh, and we implement that through using behaviors. Um, so it, it is a slightly different way of thinking about mocking because um, as Ian actually mentions in, in, in this question here, um, he talks about using web mock in Ruby where you know, you're you're injecting your mock at, at the test time. So you're basically saying that um, I'm making this request and I want to mock the response of that request um, at this point in time with this exact response. Um, and the difference is here is that you end up in this world where you are, you're trying to, you're basically trying to predefine those responses that you get back in a mock file that you're maintaining effectively. Um, so, it, it, like the way that we normally do that is encapsulate it all in a single module where that single module's responsibility like, is like an in-memory mock uh, to give you back very particular responses. Um, first of all, I can see why like why he's gone down the road, uh, route of like making the mock into an agent that you can preload with lots of records because often like if you're just hard coding these responses in a file, uh, it can get quite a lot to maintain. Um, Something else that we've done there is basically just move all of our mocks into JSON files and then have this module actually just like load a JSON file and turn it into the appropriate response. Um, so like acting more like a true mock for the for the API client there. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned using behaviors to set up your mm -hmm. mocks. Can you uh, just speak a little bit more about how that how that wiring works? Yeah, so typically what we have is a single interface, which would be, let's say that we're building a Stripe client, for instance. So um, we might have like a def module Stripe that acts as an interface into that all of that behavior around Stripe. Um, and then what we would do is have effectively like a few different functions that are callback functions, which act as behaviors um, that someone implementing this behavior has to implement, right? 
So we would end up with this def, stripe, uh, def module like Stripe client interface. And then when, what we would have is particular implementations, one for HTTP, which is like the real client, uh, quote unquote, and then one for the, the mock client. Um, and they would implement the behavior defined on the top level client. So let's say that there would be one called get underscore customer, something like that. Takes a customer ID, which happens to be a string, and returns a OK customer or error, some kind of error tuple. So now that's the contract, right? So now that uh, in my real implementation, I need to abide by that contract. So we need to do whatever massaging of the data and turning it into the appropriate structs. And then we also have to do that on the, uh, on the in-memory version as well. So now we have this explicit contract that both of those modules are trying to adhere to, um, and then return the, the data that's appropriate. And then what we do is uh, we actually use configuration variables to, to swap out which module that we're, we're using in a, kind of, um, in a kind of dependency injection kind of way, right? So we're, we're injecting the module that we're using, using our test configuration to say that in the test environment, we want to use the in-memory mock. And in the real environment, we want to use, or anything else that's not test in this case, actually, we want to use the uh, the the real one. So then, when the rest of your app is interacting with Stripe, it just calls the functions in this myapp.stripe yeah. module, and as far as it's concerned, that comes up with the answer. But then the module um, at compile time, I guess, knows how to knows which of these backends to load, whether it's your in-memory one because it's testing, or the live one because it's uh, production. Yeah, exactly. And and then what we actually do is use um, def delegates. So we say like, delegate this call on this module down into the actual the like. We often use the term implementation module mm -hmm. um, to to kind of encapsulate this idea. Um, I would say that you know for us this has worked fairly well. Uh, when we've got to much larger APIs with a bigger surface area, I think that's where it starts to fall down. Um, and also, like when you're trying to test error cases, so I, I mean, testing the happy path is one thing, right? Like you want to say for that Stripe uh, example, so let's say that we're writing a test that says when I have a Stripe customer ID, um, I can fetch and return the appropriate Stripe customer, and it gets updated or something like that, right? Let's say that we have a, a module that does that behavior, and we're, we're trying to test that. So now testing the happy path is okay. Um, we basically end up with, in our mock, we say like, given a customer ID, we, we instantiate or like fake uh, a, a struct that looks like a customer that has a few attributes that we'd expect. Um, and then, you know, our test now works, it takes the appropriate customer, it does all the behavior and everything's good. But when we're starting to test that error case, um, the way that we've ended up doing that is basically pattern matching in, in a function head inside of that mock that says maybe, if you get past like a, a string that says like error, we would always return like an error response in our Stripe implementation. If that makes sense, it does. I think testing for error cases is a it's a a, a dangerous journey because yeah. there's a million things that can go wrong, and often what you want your application to do is not handle each individual possible error case. You just want to give up, try again, show a message to the user. Uh, mm -hmm. There's only so much you can do. I mean, if you know what you want to do in certain error cases, then it makes sense to test them. But anything can go wrong. 
Yeah, no, exactly. And we, uh, to be honest, we only usually like mock out like one kind of error and then try and make a defensive piece of application code that would handle that. And uh, I just like the, the, I think the bit that kind of breaks down is this boundary between like the test itself and hard coding these kind of strings that are then brittly uh, attached to in your actual like mock implementation, right? So you end up with this like weird connection between the two where you're like, you're given a certain string of error, then you would expect the mock to return an error. And if you were doing it in like a true mocking sense and injecting the mock, um, I, I think actually in that blog post, it talks about using mocks as nouns and not verbs, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so I think if you're doing it in the, the, the other way of using mocks, um, it would be much clearer to show that like, in this particular case, I will always want to return an error. Um, and you're mocking it at that time rather than defining it in functions that would always return this thing. I still, I mean, I understand what you're saying about having this brittle coupling between some string and uh, maybe what the API is sending back. I think in practice, external APIs don't change that much and you want to know when they do. Um, and my experience with libraries like Ruby's VCR, um, mm -hmm where it records your request and the entire response, uh, it's always been a pain in the ass. Um, just setting it up and then dealing with the different cassettes and then something changes and you end up arguing with VCR for a while about getting the correct response. And um, the thing that has changed that you're interested in is buried deep down. And I would just always rather have uh, a hard-coded string that I build up that mm -hmm. looks like it that looks like the actual response that contains the things that I'm interested in. Um, I think it's much easier to reason about a smaller defined um, string. Right, no, definitely. I mean, I like the idea that you have this layer that kind of transforms the data into something that you care about as well, right? And you're doing that in, this, in these like service layers that act as boundaries between your system and whatever the external system is. So you end up with this layer that massages the data. So that's the bit that needs testing. But honestly, in actually given the Stripe example, something that we've been bitten with is we think it works, test run, and because we didn't actually have any tests for the live implementation, we actually had differences between what our mock was doing and what the live one was. Yeah. And now, you know, we're, we're falling over. And really, I think what we should do there is have, have a set of tests that actually test the live implementation that we skip unless we're explicitly doing it and maybe only run those in CI or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that is something that you have to be aware of and I think is the is a risk with any mock is it gets stale. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it might not even be getting stale. It might just be that like you're you're just not testing the actual, you know, you're not actually testing the the, the HTTP client, mm -hmm. right? And you might have something weird in there where like you're doing a bunch of setup for headers or something like that and like because you're not doing that in your mock now, like now you have this big difference between those two things. Um, so yeah, I would always encourage actually trying to get those live tests in there as well, even if they're going to be slightly slower and even if they're going to be a little bit more brittle. Yeah, you don't have to run them all the time, but certainly exactly. once in a while. Yeah, and XUnit has a thing where you can skip the tests if you need to, like skip certain tags. Um, and it's a really easy way to deal with this problem. Uh, I actually think that's mentioned in the blog post as well. So we should, I, I think I link to that blog post all the time. <laughs> and we should definitely put it in the show notes as well yeah, for everyone. Definitely. But I mean, going back to the question here about um, turning your mock into an agent, 
yeah, like sure, that makes sense. It's you know whether it's an agent, whether it's a be uh, like a, a JSON file, whether it's just hard coded there. You're, you're basically doing the same thing with whatever you're doing. Um, you're you're basically saying that I have a bunch of state, and wherever that state lives, it, it doesn't really matter. I'm guessing in this case, what what they're doing is setting up this agent, and then in the test, probably in um, adding a bunch of records into that agent and then expecting that the agent has those records when they're making some requests or something. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I mean, that's that's definitely a fine way of doing it as well. Like, I would say the end result is basically the same, whatever you're doing, right? You're just moving the state around bet between like, am I defining it in a mock and it's hard-coded or am I defining it in the test itself? Um, and of course, I guess, it goes without saying that your tests are only as good as your mocks, and uh, you know, and your your tests are only as good as like what they're actually testing as well. Yeah, I would probably not use an agent for this and just use a, a JSON file because there's a little less wiring. Right. I but I can see that I can see the example here where you need to like I want to test a customer with this particular state, and I also want the request to return a customer with this particular state as well. Mm -hmm. So the, I'm guessing what they're doing is like. They're setting up the test, injecting the agent with all of those, with those different states, and making the test, tearing it down. Then in another test, probably setting up with some different customer states to test the as many different states as they would expect to be returned in the uh, in the actual live implementation. Yeah, I think in that case, I would still use um, like a request function in my mock implementation that pattern matched on a particular user string that returned the different user records I wanted. Um, that seems easier to me, but your mileage may vary. Maybe you need something that's worth the uh, the additional infrastructure of an agent. That's fine too. It's right. really just whatever is easiest for you. Yeah, I, I honestly though, like going back to it, I really like the like dependency injection approach of like this is a module I'm swapping out its implementation, and now um, you're doing that at compile time as well. It, it it feels like something that's like it's a it's a nice way to model this problem, right? Instead of like passing down an explicit module into some um, into some function and then calling that. You're actually just using your configuration file to drive what modules mm -hmm. picked up. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I would definitely recommend that approach if people haven't done it. But you know, there are other ways to mock in Elixir as well. There are libraries that um, actually act more like the web mocks of the world. And you, get, you can actually like dynamically inject a module and say, I want this to return this particular value at execution time of the test, rather than doing this whole other kind of slightly more convoluted approach of having different implementations and everything. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say like, you need to talk to your team about what works best for you because you all might be used to this other way. Um, and I, I don't think you should be dogmatic about like reading what Jose had written on the platformer tech blog and being like, this is the only way to do it, I think. Um, if you're used to a different way of mocking, that's okay as well. Um, there's actually some Erlang libraries that mock like that as well. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that there's one true way of doing it. I agree. <laughs> what what what's what's our motto here on Elixir Talk? It depends. It depends. It depends. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And yeah, I think it's it is it's one of those conversations that before you embark on a project. Have that talk with your team. Talk about mocking. Um, try out some different kind of different ways of doing it, and get some consensus amongst your team before you start going down a particular approach. Um, what works for Desmond and I might not work for you. 
Sounds good, Chris. Thanks a lot. Yeah, sure. I'm honestly testing is one of those things that I don't enjoy talking about that much because I'm always like, I always feel like I've never, I haven't got to the point where I'm like, yeah, my tests are brilliant, you know. Well, hopefully, after you attend this uh, awesome property-based testing tutorial at MPEX LA, <laughs> you'll feel differently. Nice, nice segue there, Deadsons. Thank Love you. It. On that high note. <laughs> This has been another awesome episode of Elixir Talk. Uh, welcome to 2018, everyone, and thanks for joining us. Uh, we will be back soon with our next episode. It's been a couple of weeks, um, but we're back in the saddle. Um, we're looking forward to having a great 2018 uh, with you. And uh, hope to see you at MPEX LA in a couple weeks. But if not then, then sometime soon. Yeah, definitely. And we will get back into the cadence of doing this, right? We, we, we promise we ourselves promise. that we will do it. We promise. Yes. Ourselves and you. Yes. All right, everyone. Until next time, keep elixiring. Yeah. Keep elixiring. Cheers. <laughs>